we're going to see what Matthew has for us in his gospel today. We're going to be jumping around actually to an Old Testament passage as well as a way later passage in Revelation. But we're going to be looking at the meat of a the two entrances from meek to majestic. Matthew 21 is, of course, the triumphant entry of Christ, him riding to town on a donkey. Many of us know this story. Um, it's been told to us all throughout Sunday school, or at least it's been shown on TV a few times here and there. As I was getting ready for this lesson, though, um, many of you guys know that they're remaking the, the Aladdin movie, right? And it got me thinking back to the cartoon version, which I'm going to just go ahead and say is probably still going to be better than the new one. Um, but Aladdin in the movie makes a grand entrance into Agrabah. And if you don't know the movie, it's about a, a boy who's pretty much poor out on his luck, finds a magic lamp, gets a genie to grant him three wishes. The first one is that he becomes a prince. And so, of course, as he's walking into Agrabah, it's a grand entrance, right? And as you go through the movie, you see, you know, genie's out celebrating Aladdin coming in. Aladdin's riding on an elephant. He's got a ton of people following him, camels going through the city, people carrying large dishes of gold going through the city, scattering it for the people. He's got singers, flag banners, dancers, animals, you name it. The guy's got a grand entrance. For a king, this is pretty cool for a prince. Uh, but what's interesting is we know that from this movie, Aladdin's a fake, right? He's not a real prince. This is all just kind of make-believe, right? And what happens is he loses all of that. He loses his magic genie, right? And at the end of the movie, though, he does become a real prince by marrying, of course, Princess Jasmine. But what we see in the Bible is something very different. Jesus is a real king. And his coming in in a triumphal entry was to announce something. But his first entry is pretty meek compared to his second one, which is when he comes back as a king. And we're going to be looking at these two today. So as you look at Matthew, chapter 21, 1 through 11, we're going to read that here together today. It says this, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, And immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden." The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the tree and spread them on the road. And the crowd that went before him, and they followed him, shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he had entered Jerusalem... The whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So just a few things that before we get into this that we need to know is Matthew's book is written to a Jewish audience. 
So it's no surprise that if you read through the book of Matthew, you're going to see that over and over again, Matthew points out this was to fulfill a prophecy, or this is what was said of the Old Testament, and now Jesus is doing it. The reason Matthew is doing this is to show his Jewish audience that Jesus was the Messiah, the rightful king who was promised to come in the Old Testament. That every instance, Jesus is showing his authority, his power, over whether it be the law, illness, death, the power to forgive sins. Jesus is showing them all of these things, not only through his ministry, through his works, but through his words. And now, even as he fulfills prophecy, riding into town on a donkey. And so as we get into this passage, we see a couple of different things. The first thing we see here is Jesus' foreknowledge of the donkey and the colt. This is unique to Matthew's gospel, as Matthew is the only one who mentions these two animals, the donkey and the colt. But it's important here. The first thing we see is that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. From the north, doing his ministry, he hasn't been to Jerusalem in a while, and he's coming to celebrate Passover. So he would have passed through Jericho, he would have headed up through the valley, come up to the Mount of Olives and to Bethpage, and traveled from that town down into Jerusalem. He hadn't been here in a while, which is important to remember. Why? Because he tells his disciples and sends them ahead to tell them that these two animals are ready to go, exactly where to find them, and what to do when he got there. So what's cool is, you know, right, as as a normal human being, we have phones that allow us to predict some of the weather, right? Sometimes, actually most of the time, it's inaccurate. Always seems like that. Uh, But what's cool is we, we can predict some things, not really... Oh, really well, but uh, in this case, how many of us do you think could actually predict that there would be a colt and a donkey, you know, in a town waiting for us, you know, and then send people to go and get those things? You know, that doesn't that doesn't just usually happen. In fact, if Jesus was a normal man, you know, they, the disciples would have thought he's crazy. There's just no way this is possible. But after journeying three years with the guy, they know to expect a little bit more from Jesus. So Jesus tells them, go into town. Hey, you're going to find this colt, this donkey, untie them. And then what happens? He says, if anyone stops you, you say, the Lord has need of them. And then notice how Jesus says, what is going to be the response of the man? He said, he's going to let you have them. This is unique, right? This is showing that Jesus is more than just a normal human being. This is Matthew showing his readers Jesus is more than just a human being. He knows things beyond what he should. Why? Because he's God. So we see right off bat, right, he just tells the disciples, hey, go into town, grab this colt and this donkey. Then what happens? Matthew directs our attention to Old Testament, pointing us back that Jesus is grabbing these two animals to fulfill a prophecy which we're going to take a look at back in Zechariah 9, 9 and 10 here in just a moment. But Matthew does this to bring us back to show us that Jesus is yet again fulfilling a prophecy told to us about the Messianic King coming, the one who was promised to Israel all those many years ago. For Matthew's readers, they should have realized yet again this is to draw our attention to Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the King. He's the one that we were waiting for. For the people there, you know, for the disciples, right, they should have started getting this picture. Yet, unfortunately, sometimes the disciples just don't get get it right away, right? 
I mean, Jesus had to tell him that he was going to die and uh, rise again over and over again. But here we see the fulfillment of an Old Testament king, kingship prophecy. So what does that point us to? Let's go back to Zechariah 9, 9 through 10, and look at this prophecy. Zechariah 9, 9 through 10 simply says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. Well, that sounds pretty familiar, right? Okay. It doesn't stop there. It goes on. It says, I will cut off the chariots of Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be broken off or cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So we see that Zechariah 9, 9 and 10 is a kingship prophecy. It's talking about the Messiah, about what he's going to do, what he's going to do when he comes, his ministry, and what they should be expecting. So we, we of course, see Matthew's passage in here of what he pulls from. But we see that that's not the entire prophecy, right? There's a second part to it that Matthew intentionally leaves out. Why is that? Because we see that Matthew, we know that prophecies, sorry, we know that prophecies can be partly fulfilled. And what I mean by that is, if you remember, when Jesus starts his ministry, he's speaking in his hometown, in his synagogue, like he usually does. They hand him the scroll, he opens it up to Isaiah, and reads from it. He closes it back up, hands the guy the scroll, and says what? Today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. But he stops in the middle of a verse. Why? Because we know that prophecies can be fulfilled in part. Because they incorporate usually a big picture of what God is going to do. And in this case, this prophecy is a big picture. Not only was Jesus going to come, mounted on a donkey, and bring peace and salvation to people, but he was going to rule and reign. He was going to cut off the weapons of war from the people around Israel, and in Israel, they would be at peace, and he would speak peace to the nations, and that his rule would be what? Limited? No. It would incorporate the whole world, right? From sea to sea, all of the earth, his rule, or he would reign from. This is significant, because what happens is Zephaniah, or Zechariah, sorry, Zechariah, His prophecy is two-parted. And what do we see? Well, we see the triumphal entry in the first part. And then what kind of entry do we see in the second part? Well, this points us to Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Many of you guys know this passage. For those of you who have not read Revelation, I want to encourage you to read Revelation. But before you even get there, read the entire rest of the Bible. I taught a Sunday school class not too long ago on this. And as we got into Revelation, if you've looked at the Old Testament of what the major and minor prophets have to say about the day of the Lord, what Daniel has to say, what Isaiah points out, when you look at what Jesus talks about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and what Paul has to mention, by the time you get to Revelation, everything's already told to us. Revelation gives us just a little bit more of a timeline of what the tribulation time is going to look, what it's going to look like what Jesus Christ's entry and what his kingdom is going to look like, 
and what's going to happen to the people who conquer in the name of the Lord. How they will be rewarded with eternal life and eternal peace with God, their Savior. Revelation 19 leads us to the part where Satan has gathered up the armies of nations and they are ready to wage war against the Lamb, the Son of God. And John looks up and he sees this. It says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heavens, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, why is this important? Why are we talking about this? Because Zechariah shows this part in his prophecy. Christ was going to come. He's going to set up a na- He's going to rule the nations. He's going to bring peace by judging those who have rejected him. But you see, Matthew is pointing us to the first part of this prophecy, how he would bring peace from sin as he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. The donkey is simply a symbol of peace. This is what a king would ride into. I'm sure many of you guys have probably heard of that. But the people there who are seeing this event are kind of wondering, what peace is he going to bring? And we'll talk about that in a second. But we see Zechariah also points out that a ministry of the Messianic king was going to be this ruling. Revelation talks about this. And we'll compare these two entrances here in just one minute. But let's go back to our passage. What else do we see here? Matthew 21 simply shows us the obedience of the disciples too, right? I love this. The disciples don't ask Jesus, well, what happens if you're wrong? After, again, traveling three years with the guy, you pick up that he's not normal. Uh, So they go in, and they find this colt. They find the donkey. They bring him to Jesus. And what happens? The disciples prepare the donkey. They they prepare the colt. They put their coats, their cloaks on him so that Jesus could ride into town on him. Now, this trip would have taken about a mile or more, depending on the zigzags and the turns. If it's anything like PA roads, it'd take you a while because they're just not ever finished. Um, But what happens? As he's riding into the town, the crowd is following him, crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna in the highest. They're throwing their coats down in front of the donkey, allowing the donkey to to walk on those things. They're putting down palm branches and waving them, shouting praises. This is, this is a good thing, right? Again, Matthew uses this as a fulfillment of Old Testament. Psalms 118, 25 through 26 is where this Hosanna, these praises come from. As Will said, it, it simply means, save us, we pray. Save us, O God. Now, what, was, what were the Jews asking to be saved from? Many of them were asking to be saved from the military oppression that they were facing. Years and years and years ago, the Greeks had ruled over the Jews, and now it's the Romans. The Romans were stronger. They oppressed the people. 
They were harsh. The Jews did not like this. Even though they could self-govern to a point, they wanted to be free. They wanted to be a free nation again. Many people were looking for freedom from this military power. Others were looking for freedom and peace from physical illnesses and disabilities. They were looking to be saved from all of this. Now, you think about Jesus' ministry. We read the miracles. What did he do? He bought freedom from illness, from sickness, from pain, from lameness, from disabilities, from leprosy. But that wasn't really what he was here for. Matthew points out here that there was going to be another type of peace he was going to bring. One from sin, which is what separated us from God the Father. Why? Because Good Friday is about that. In just a few days, we're gonna, you know, we'll celebrate Easter a week from now. About what Christ did on the cross and through his resurrection. He was going to bring peace from sin. He was going to be able to bring us back together into a right relationship with God the Father. I like what the NIV commentary simply has to say. It says this, Jesus had undertaken a different kind of triumphal entry from what many in the crowd were expecting. Jesus would triumph over the enemy of sin. He would bring salvation to his people through his own righteous sacrifice on the cross, which he knew loomed ahead of him. But that doesn't end our passage. He doesn't just end up in the city, right? The city is stirring. Now, what does that mean? This word is used one place elsewhere within Matthew, just a few chapters away in Matthew chapter 27, when it says that the earth shook and the temple curtain split. It's the same word there. There is an uproar happening up in Jerusalem. It's almost like a peaceful riot, if you could imagine that. This guy is coming in and people want to know, what is going on? Who is this? And the sad thing is we see the crowd's misunderstanding in their statement. This is the prophet Jesus. They see him as a messenger from God. They see him as doing a lot of good things. But they missed out who Jesus truly was. Who Jesus proved himself to be. Who Jesus... Over and over and over again, claimed to be. They missed out. They were missing what this fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy was about. He was proving himself to be the Messiah, the one that they were waiting for. Yet the people are blind, they miss it. They simply attribute him as the prophet. Now, real quick, as we look at the entrances, I want to just talk about these two real quickly because these are interesting when you compare the two. The first one, right, what we just saw in the passage, he rides on a donkey. The donkey symbolizes peace. What is Jesus going to do? He's going to bring peace from sin, right? That's the whole purpose of this Easter week that we talk about and that we recognize and that we remember. Then the third one is that people respond in praise and humility. They're worshiping him kind of as they're coming in. They're crying out praises to God, okay, in the most general sense, but they misunderstand who he is. They don't see him for what he truly is. Now, the second one, just think about this. We read this, right? He comes on a white horse. What does a white horse symbolize? War and victory, right? 
And what did we read about? In Revelation 21, he talks about how he's coming to bring judgment, to make war against these nations, to rule them with a rod of iron. Okay, he judges and makes war. He's got a crown upon his head. His robe is dipped in blood. This is a very different picture from the first triumphal entry. This, I almost want to call it the real triumphal entry, but the second triumphal entry uh, is almost kind of gruesome. There's a rod of iron in his hand. He's carrying out God's wrath. But what's also very interesting is if you read through Revelation, leading up to Revelation, or sorry, 19, is the fact that after the judgments God has sent, there's a line and a phrase that is repeated over and over again is that the people acknowledge these judgments are from God, but they still will not repent and turn from their sins. They just are stuck in their sins. They don't want to acknowledge him. But what's interesting is when John sees the heavens open up and Jesus Christ coming down, everyone knows who he is. They know he's the Lamb of God. They're there to wage war against him. And he's going to carry out his judgment. With one word, he's going to wipe out the armies of the nations, and he's going to bring judgment. And then he's going to bring peace to those who have trusted in him. He's going to set up his kingdom and rule all nations. This is what Zechariah was picturing. This is what Matthew wants us to understand. Because the first part has been fulfilled. Guess what? The second part is going to be fulfilled as well through Jesus Christ. He's bringing us into anticipation of what Christ is going to do. Not only on the cross, not only through the resurrection, but also through his return. So let's take a look at some principles that we see in this passage here together. The first one is this one, is that Jesus started to fill past prophecies, and he will fulfill all prophecies. We clearly see that Jesus is fulfilling the prophecies that were given about the Christ, the Messiah, the King. He was, he was the one that the Jews should have been waiting for. It also shows that just as he fulfilled the past prophecies, he will fulfill what? the future ones. Which means that we can place our hope and our trust knowing that if he was able to accomplish the past ones, he has the power, he has the authority, he has the ability to to fulfill all of them. All of them. Which means he is going to come and rule and reign. And we can put our hope and our trust in that. Right? C.S. Lewis, you know, many of you guys have probably heard this quote, but C.S. Lewis said there's only three options for Jesus Christ of who he was. He was either a really good liar, he was a lunatic, or he was Lord. But when you look at the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, especially from his birth, things that he couldn't technically control as a human being, but as God, he was able to order these things. Being born in Bethlehem, being born during a crisis, having a king send an army to slaughter three-year-old children and younger, escaping to Egypt, coming back from Egypt, These are all certain prophecies that were prophesied about the Messiah that there's no way a normal person could control. Again, proving, Matthew uses these to prove that he is the one that they were waiting for. If he has the ability to fulfill all of those, he has the ability to fulfill the future ones as well. And if he started already to fulfill them, he's going to finish it. The second thing we see here is the humility and praise should be directed toward Christ. Or sorry, no, it's, it's possible for people to see Christ work in their lives and miss who he is. Sorry about that. Think about it like this. 
The people in the crowd were celebrating, praising him. They should have noticed that this was a work of God, yet they missed out on who Jesus Christ was. Now think about it in our lives. Sometimes we have blinders on our eyes. And we, we just say, well, I haven't seen God work in my life. I haven't seen him there. Why? Because we're so focused on something else. If we take the blinders off, what? We can see Christ working on our lives. But we have to understand that this principle is very true. There are a lot of people out there who see God's work. They see Christ working in their lives, bringing about answers to prayers and things like that, yet they still just completely miss him. Christ isn't just working in Christians' lives. He's showing mercy. He's showing grace to everyone. Yet some people will just completely ignore it. Some people will reject it just flat out, while others accept it. But we have to understand, Christians, it is a possibility for people to be blind. Because unfortunately, there are some times that we can be that blind as well. We need to remember that it is very possible to see Christ's work, but yet also miss who he is. Just as the people took Jesus for a good moral teacher, a prophet, a sent one from God, but they didn't understand he was God's son. The third one here is humility and praise should be directed toward God. Notice that the people, they do respond positively here. This is a good thing that they act humbly by throwing their cloaks on the ground, praising Jesus as he, he walks into Jerusalem. This is something good. But yet, it's directed for the wrong reason. But for us as Christians, you know, we need to show our humility and praise to God as well. We need to lay the things that we are grasping tightly in our life down before the feet of Christ. Give them over to him. Admit that we can't handle these things, but he can. And then the fourth principle we see here is this. Is Christ is going to return and bring peace to all nations and his rule. Matthew wants us to understand this. That yes, he did bring peace from sin, but he's going to bring peace to all nations because he's going to rule over all nations and judge all nations. So what does that mean for us in application? Well, there's just four simple points that I want to go over real quick here. The first one is acknowledge and follow Christ. We need to commit our life to him. We need to commit ourselves to him. He is the only savior, the only king that matters. And if you're sitting here today, before you look at any of these other points, you have to start here. What do you do with Christ? Do you acknowledge him as your savior, your king, the only way to bring about forgiveness in your life from sins? Do you even acknowledge your own sins and your need for salvation? Or do you just plain out reject him? There's a lot of people out in the world who just want to reject him. Reject that he even existed. That he did what he said he was going to do. But this passage calls us to acknowledge him, to admit who he is, to see who Jesus Christ is, and to commit our lives to him. The second thing here is that we need to humble ourselves before Christ and lay everything before him. We need to walk humbly. Now simply, what does that mean? As I said before, that means that in our lives, we need to place the things that we have such a tight grasp on before the feet of Christ. So let me give you a couple of illustrations. The first one is parenting. Many of you guys are in here parents. Some of you are going to be parents. Here's the thing. There are times in your parenting that you just want to be like, I'm doing things my way. 
the hammer of justice is coming down. Kids, look, you know, sometimes you drive your parents crazy. I get that. I've got a two-year-old son. He drives me crazy sometimes. Love him to death. But he's a wild child. Uh, There's a lot of times I want to take parenting into my own hands. But I have to acknowledge that I don't have the answers to everything in parenting. I have to acknowledge that in almost every area of my life. I don't hold all the answers. I don't always respond what's best, and I don't always know how to respond to what's best. But God does. And so walking humbly simply means that I'm going to give over my parenting to God. And then I'm going to trust and follow the way he said to parent. And what happens when I do that? I see a different outcome from what I usually see. See, if I parent in my own way, I see my kid respond sometimes not so greatly to it. Sometimes he throws more of a fit. Sometimes the problem worsens. But usually when I respond God's way, things change. I see my child respond differently. I see things don't continue, that they are changing, they are progressing forward. Now that goes in with the rest of our life, whether it be with our relationships, with our finances, uh, whether it be with how we do education, how we raise our families. All of these things, these are major, major areas of our life that we need to place before the feet of God and say, God, how do you want us to walk in these areas? We have to admit, I don't always have the right answer. And so just as the people, you know, they place their coats, they place palm branches down before Christ, we as Christians need to place every area of our life down before Christ and say, we're going to do things your way, God. We're going to follow your word. We're going to do what's, what we know is best for us, which is obeying you. That leads us to the third one, is that we need to direct our praise and our honor to Christ in our life. What this simply means is that we need to acknowledge him working in us. There's a reason that when, when I pray at, at the announcement time and at the offering, I always thank God for the things he's given us and the things he's provided for us. That's not done repetitiously. That's done for a purpose. Because we need to acknowledge that everything that we have in our life is from God and give him the praise and the thanks for those things. Your two hands, your two arms, the two legs you can walk with, your ability to talk, see, smell, hear. Be thankful for those things. Your spouse, be thankful for your spouse. Be thankful for your kids. Be thankful for your house, your car, whatever it is. God's given you these things, and we need to direct our praise and our honor to them. You find this principle over, over, and over, and over again in the New Testament. Paul always talks about directing praise and honor and glory to God, to Christ, and what he's done. And so we need to do the same thing. We need to direct our praise and our honor to Christ in our life, where, whatever the scenario may be. And the final one is this one. There's a reason God has left us here on earth. There's a reason why he hasn't taken us right when we get saved. And it's to help others through their mis- misunderstanding of who Christ is. I mean, you think about this. This has been happening since the resurrection of Christ, or maybe even before the resurrection of Christ. Uh, what happens when Jesus raises again from the dead? The soldiers go to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees tell them what? Lie about it. Tell them that the disciples overtook you, they stole the body. He didn't really rise again. They want to deny, and they want to influence people, influence their understanding of what Christ has done and who he is. There's a lot of people in our world with a misunderstanding of who Christ is, who God is, and what he's done for us. And Christians, we're here to help correct 
to help point people to who Christ really is, to what he's really done. The main source we get to use is God's word. But we're here. There's many stories out there. There's many misconceptions. It's been happening. Even through the New Testament, we see that, right? People say, well, yeah, sure, Jesus died for our sins, but you also have to work for your salvation, right? He didn't really cover it all. We got to do some of it. That was a misconception, a misunderstanding of what Christ did. There's also the fact that there were belief systems that, oh, Jesus really wasn't, you know, just human, or he wasn't fully God either. You know, he was just a spirit being hovering over the earth here. Uh, wrong, no. You know, the Bible tells us the truth. Christians, we're here to help people and correct people in their misunderstandings of who Christ is. We need to direct them and point them to Christ. This can take place in many different areas of your life. I'm going to use one as my illustration. Because we're all different. We all have different uh, situations, scenarios in our life. Uh, In the early service, I used uh, Bob Breon. Uh, his funeral come come Tuesday. You know the gospel is going to be clearly shared there. Why? Because he he acknowledged and he followed Christ and he knew what was really important in this life. And Paul's going to get the opportunity to share Christ there. That's one way of helping people understand why. Because we know that people who come to a funeral aren't always saved. They have misunderstandings of who Christ is or what he's about, what it means to get to heaven or how to get to heaven. Paul's going to help direct those people. For me, you know, when it comes to, um, I was coaching track the last couple of years. You know, when you tell kids that you're a pastor, they come up with some weird questions for you. So it was a great opportunity to talk with them. But the fact is, they have some misconceptions and misunderstandings of what the Bible has to say about who God is, who Christ is, and what he's done for us. So I got a chance to use my, or I got a chance to talk to the kids there. For you guys, it may be at work. It may be at a hospital. It may be at, a well, for some of us, a tractor pool, right? Uh, maybe it's at lunch. Maybe it's with your neighbors when you're talking to them, hedging your bushes or something like that. You, God has you here to help others, to point them to Christ, to point them to the truth of what's in Scripture. Okay, and so I want to leave you guys with these three questions and we're, we're, we're done. The first one is, who is Christ in your life? Do you acknowledge him? Do you acknowledge your need for him in your life? Do you see him as your king, your savior, the one who's truly provided salvation, the way, the truth, the life, the light? Or do you just reject him? You have to start there. That's the most important thing that you could do today is answer that question. The second thing is simply... How are you responding to him? Are you walking humbly and and directing praise to him? Or are you walking along life with blinders on? And saying, well, I just, I don't see God working. How comes he's not working in my field of vision? Sometimes we need to look beyond ourselves. We need to look at what God's doing in all of our life. But are we directing the praise and the honor to him? And are we walking humbly and saying, I don't always have a great grip on life. God, I need your direction for it. And then the last one is this one. Are you ready for his return, for his next triumphal entry? It's going to be one of judgment. And believe me, if you're at that point, it's already too late. You don't want to be there. You don't want to be at judgment. Deal with it now. 
He brought peace to us. We celebrate that Good Friday. We'll celebrate that with Easter. The deal is he has brought peace to sin. We can be right with God. Have you taken advantage of that? Have you made that opportunity? Where are you going to be at when Christ does judge? Are you going to be the ones that he welcomes into his kingdom and says, well done, good and faithful servant? Or is he going to say, depart from me? I never knew you. So we want to leave you with that. Just think about the two entrances. We celebrate Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem on a donkey, bringing peace here. He is the real king. But he's coming back again, and I want you to remember that. We can have hope in that. But that we should also remember that it's going to be about judgment. Let's close in a word of prayer, shall we? Dearly Father, Lord, again, we just thank you for the opportunity to study your word, to look at your first entry into Jerusalem, Lord, and what it is that you would do. Lord, we celebrate that every Sunday here, thanking you for the price that you paid on the cross for our sins. You were the perfect, spotless Lamb of God who took sin upon himself, all the sin of the world, and you bore that punishment for us. Lord, we are thankful for that. We also are thankful that you didn't stay dead, that death didn't overcome you. You overcame death and that you rose again. And now we have the hope in you that we could have eternal life with you. God, we are thankful for that. But Lord, we also want to pray that you will just continue to work within us. Lord, I know I have to pray for myself that I don't always walk humbly with you. Sometimes I take matters into my own hand and I know I have to ask for forgiveness for those things. But Lord, I pray that as Christians that we will walk humbly with you, that we'll place these things before your feet and say we want to do things your way, that we will be obedient to your word and your truth. Lord, we also want to pray that we will praise and honor your name in every situation of life, that we will direct the praise and the honor to you because you are worthy of it. You deserve it. And help us to do that in front of others as well, not just in our own personal life, but in front of others. Because that can be a good testimony of us seeing you work in their, or our lives and theirs. And finally, Lord, I just want to pray that as we remember your return and what it is that you're going to do, of how you're going to bring peace to all nations through your rule and through your reign, that we will have a passion to continue to help others out in their understanding of what the gospel truly is to clear up any misconceptions or misunderstandings and point them to your son, Jesus Christ, as the way, the truth, and the life. Because we know no one comes to the Father except through him. And Lord, we are here, we are your ambassadors of reconciliation to do just that, to help others. So let us do that. Lord, I just pray that you give us the courage in your spirit to do that this week as we interact with people through our jobs or interact with people as our neighbors or through our communities, that we'll just continue to be that light and salt that we need to be here in this dark world. Lord, I pray that you just give us a good rest of the day. We pray that we will continue to to honor you with the rest of our lives, especially as we leave here. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.